Hi, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and this is The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Adam Nathaniel Furman is an artist and designer who trained in architecture and works in spatial design and art of all scales, from videos and prints to large-scale public artworks, architecture, architecturally integrated ornament, products, furniture, interiors, publishing, and academia. Joshua Mardell is an architectural historian and currently an associate lecturer in the Department of History of Art at the University of York. Um, thank you for the invite. Uh, my name is Adam Nathaniel Furman. I'm an artist and designer based in London. I studied architecture, taught in architecture, worked in architecture, but um, never attained that uh, that great gold standard of being an architect. But uh, I operate in that area um, and uh, I'm very lucky to have done this book, Queer Spaces with Josh and the RIBA. So Josh, over to you. Great, thank you very much. Um, conversely, um, I'm an architectural historian currently based at the University of York. My background is in archaeology and in architectural history. I largely think of my, I mean, a lot of my work isn't strictly speaking queer, but um, all of it is informed by queerness as a kind of sensibility, by which I mean trying to find a place for those figures largely figures, in some cases objects, that have been marginalised, that have been forgotten in the history of architecture um, so far, which is to me what, what the Queer Spaces um, book is, is also doing to some extent. On that note, I should probably mention that my practice and my work has always been deeply queer. Well, I think that it's, it's led beautifully to um, to the book itself as an act. It's described in the introduction as an act of queer heirlooming, this idea that this collection of spaces is contributing um, and creating a record of, of queer spaces um, globally. And it'd be really interesting to hear about that process of selection and assembly and some of the, the thought that you've brought to, uh, to this uh, collection. Um, and also, you know, let's talk about the kinds of spaces that you've uh, included there um, and um, and how you you set about finding them. Right. Well, um, perhaps I'll start. So, I mean, one of the most important things to say is that we were hoping to publish a very visually enticing book. So a book of spaces and stories that celebrate um, and I think celebrates largely the right word, the complexity and also the richness of queer life, stories that are enacted through spaces, mapping um, unexpected continuities across place, across time, across typology. I think I said celebrate because I think um, our book is on the one hand stoutly revisionist, it's really doing something new, but I think it's much, it's a positive book, largely speaking, it's much less about victimhood, which is a key inevitable trope of a lot of queer scholarship. Generally speaking, it's a vindication of queer spaces and at times also a celebration. So it's trying, uh, it's really an attempt to provide for everyone, perhaps especially for designers, a legitimate pedigree for queer existence, largely centered in the sphere, broadly speaking, of the built environment. Um, so we've got all these examples of, of queer spaces um, published by the official professional body uh, for the field in the UK, the Royal Institute of British Architects. So all of a sudden, um, for the first time, these spaces, these experiences, these stories are bound in print forever and a day between um, linen 
for linen and rainbow foil boards. Yeah, and we we were aiming to, you know, go, going through. If if I can just go back to sort of a little bit of a personal beginning, you know, going through architecture school in the in the two thousands as a you know sort of young queer. Uh, student who came from a very sort of activist queer background uh, in London, um, it was virtually impossible to find to find an architectural history with which I could use or, or which with which I could justify, back up, give substance to questions, um, the 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 sort of themes and the types of designs that I wanted to do. Everyone else in architecture school was given, or not everyone else, because for instance, actually women were missing from most of these as well. But uh, ev most other people were given a kind of specific set or there was sort of a series of canons, which they were offered a set of names with many, many books, all of which were recognized, even if people, some tutors liked some, some tutors disliked others. They were all respected as being great architects. These were really serious issues if you followed them. And everyone could, you know, do a bad project, but then reference these great figures and some and the ideas that they talked about, and somehow their work was serious. And as a sort of queer designer wanting to do in architecture to do queer topics through queer designs, it was I had to start from scratch to basically find the histories that would allow me to go through and present work that would allow me that would that would be able to be passed without being completely ridiculed. And I sort of found a few, but the idea is here to sort of look back in architectural history and see that there are these incredible flowers that blossomed in the sort of desert <laughs> of, of modernity and, uh, you know, sort of cis-hetero-paternalistic domination, domination um, of creative society, which continues very much to this day. Um, and to give people literally just like a deck of brilliance that indicates how much more there was that didn't manage to make it into the book that they can just use as all of those kind of examples from Mies to Kenzo Tanga to, I don't know, radical this and radical that, that was used in the past, but they can use it for their queer interests as a, as a history that is recognized by the RIBA as being <laughs> of substance. And so the, the kind of motivation behind it was very personal, but personal, with extra force because we know that every or many other queer people going through the profession, many most of whom I know, for instance, were pushed out of the profession by the time they reached my age for these reasons, um, would feel the same and it would be important for them. And so that's when we began the process of discussing, okay, we've lived these spaces. These spaces, it literally in my case, saved my life, quite literally. Um, Josh, we lived through them and so what are they like how can we not categorize them but like how can we come start coming up with a list which had to be all over the world because we didn't want to be the sort of myopic british publication but how can we look all over the world and across time and then really interesting discussion started <laughs> as you might yeah imagine. and i think the across time was something that really struck me as i was looking through the book i mean these kind of the 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 idea of um well the the kind of uh back-to-back -back, uh houses that have been transformed into um spaces that are kind of uncovered through uh crime records uh or you know criminal records um or some of the very you know incredibly grand spaces of Sissinghurst castle um or some of the other um spaces that are uh documented um that are actually you know super contemporary um as well uh so that kind of span of, of time and place is um 
is really interesting. Those, you know, when looking at those kind of um, historical spaces, was there a, a lack of documentation or was it about reframing those uh, projects in the context of a queer history? Uh, well, I think um, to no small extent, and of course there has been a great deal of pioneering work that has preceded this book, that's important. Ours is different in its orientation in the sense that it's a series of short essays that's really um, uh, visually presented for the first time. Um, but I think, generally speaking, it's about acknowledging in the first instance that it's not that there wasn't the existence of queer people in the past. They existed. It's just from where I'm coming from, it's the idea that historians haven't or at least haven't sufficiently looked for them yet. Um, so it's about thinking, rethinking what architectural history can do to recapture those stories from the past, um, which in the past we might say has suppressed, even eliminated them. Um, so I think, I mean, if I'm on topic, I think the book is about queering architecture, but in that, in the process, it's about queering history itself, it's about queering the sources, it's about broadening the range of human experiences that we choose to talk about. It's providing a new lens of looking at things that have been overlooked. Um, and you mentioned, you know, uh, for example, the I think the two up, two down house in in um, in Sheffield is what you're referring to, which is a common or garden um, queer space. And I think, you know, so we're also very interested in recovering non elite spaces going across class. Um, and, 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 and finding those stories written out of architectural history, challenging the sorts of things Adam was talking about, the mainstream architectural discourse, um, to think more broadly about how space is gendered, sexualized, in other, you know, alternatively inhabited. Yeah, and, and, and even, with, even with historical that are very well known that we have in the book, so we have some sort of star cases like Font Hill, for instance, um, William Beckford, you know, I've read texts, you know, on that that space, and and I think his queerness is sort of mentioned as a, a malady that's sort of part of the mix, or just bitter. The, it tends to be a part of explaining why it's so odd, um, and I think there's a big change to reorient the story so that actually queerness is at the very core of everything and explains how it explains the very sort of genesis of why someone's existence would lead to the creation of a space like that rather than just a sort of um you know a sort of deviant a deviance that somehow just makes it all seem other and makes it, it put, puts it on the shelf of weird odd things in architectural history that must be mentioned because it was by a famous architect and was very big um, so even with the existing ones that are very famous, it's a sort of reorienting to put Aquinas at the center. Similarly with um, with Ludwig II, sorry, Ludwig said second king of Bavaria, last king of Bavaria. And also with, um, I thought it was interesting, the Dracula's Den house, um, which it, with its absence of windows and then that being placed, you know, in the kind of, um, uh, you know, the light coffin being described as then, um, you know, to kind of prevent viewing or to have this kind of private space without windows, as opposed to it just being kind of a radical contemporary house without windows with only skylights, um, because they're just odd people being placed in kind of a context of seeing and not seeing and overseeing. And the context of contemporary 1990s Japan and the way that um, gayness at the time had become a sort of commercialized success. 
and was very present in you know television figures and there was great interest in it but at the same time um, there was the desire to escape because there was a lot of normalizing expectations that came with that um, you know there's that there's that sort of history recent history of uh, minstrelization where as a queer person you were accepted if you were a caricature of all the worst traits which people expect from a queer person which therefore neutralizes your radical potential because you're everything they expect you know that ooh darling um sort of figure and everything is an innuendo and and the uk was going through something similar as well at the same time and that that sort of ex extra exposure simultaneously created the the desire to completely hide <laughs> which was manifest in this in this house which paradoxically at the height of sort of gay visibility in japan was actually a Dracula's den light coffin because all it wanted them to make them do was to hide to live their own radicality which as you can see from the photos is not the sort of gay colorful spandex happy version of queerness but it was actually their own deeply not strange but deeply specific way of living that was as you can see in, in the image in the book they're sort of they're living in sort of plastic tents and the toilets open <laughs> it's really not what what one might expect from the television shows of the time, for instance. So they created this box to hide in effectively, um, which then simultaneously is also an, a landmark in the landscape because it's built in the bucolic Chiba countryside uh, east of Tokyo, where it's actually the most prominent object in the landscapes. <laughs> so there's this wonderful dynamic of, of being really prominent and extrovert and seen, but at the same time, being hidden both on the architectural scale for that building, but then also at the national scale of what was happening uh, for queer culture overall, this being a little sort of, this being emblematic of it. So what were some other, you know, queer typologies or ideas, I suppose, that were um, commonalities found in, in some of the collection of queer spaces? So, we, I mean, we, what, the way it's presented, we've worked really hard to do a sort of anti-Venturi. Um, we, you know, we we chose not to write this ourselves. We chose not to write it as a narrative, which is a sort of enforced perspective um, that artificially curates history. Um, we invited 50 contributors, more than 50, Josh, is it more than 50? 55. 50, yeah. <laughs> 55 contributors, all with their own brilliant voices. Um, and um, spaces over the past 200 years and across the world. Um, and we didn't want to group them into types, uh, which would then effectively give us authorial control uh, in a sort of theoretical way by saying, this is what queer space is and break it down into categories or do diagrams that explain how it's used. And the tendency of, of architects to want to stamp their ownership over a broad swathe of human creativity by labeling it um, and categorizing it and diagramming it. I mean, famously the duck and the shed type, you know, which sort of took bottom-up architecture of the post-war period and sort of turned it into an object that belonged to a couple of academics. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we were very excited to discuss what kind of spaces we'd experienced, what kinds of spaces we were coming across through our journey of uh, reaching through our kinship networks out into the, the kinship networks of friends that we had met and then friends who had put us into friends and these sort of wonderful journeys that we went on uh, researching the book. We, we sort of were talking about, well, what are these? And we did come across a few type, types 
of uh, spaces which don't fit into normal architectural design categorization, but they're very queer. Um, a really important one, which I think Josh will probably pick up on straight away, is archives. So the importance of um, queers have a very stop-start history, like my experience in university. In many cases, uh, queer societies and well, queer communities have to start from scratch, and it's very easy for history in one place or queer history in one place to be completely lost. And there is a desire because you know queers appear from many different families and appear in different places, and that continuity is hard to create. And the act of create or the act of putting together archives is a is a way of forming a history that can be passed on and shared. It's a way of making family and culture and giving strength to those who come in the future because you have no future you have no ability to stand up to the present without a past so queer archiving which is without institutional support which is without money which is without very very often illegal um, which very often doesn't have the resources to archive material and things the way that uh, they normally are in in um in the, the basements of, uh, of government buildings. So that's one. The reappropriation of symbolic spaces is another one that we found numerous wonderful examples of around the world and in included about three that represent it. So the, the way that queers have very often gravitated towards the greatest symbols of might of uh, the sort of ruling um, societal structures of any given place and time and very much inserted themselves within it, subverted it and actually turned those spaces, architectures and symbols into the very being of queerness. I mean, there's a great history within Catholicism that goes back many hundred years uh, of queers doing that there. But um, and we have one we have one appropriate space for that. But there's lots of other examples for pretty much every other every type of political structure or political uh, uh, body politic that you can imagine. There's the construction of alternative realities, which is um, uh, Beck, William Beckford with Font Hill, the sort of giant neo gothic. Uh, wonder palace as well as Ludwig II and his numerous palaces that he built this this desire for the haute bourgeois queer to be able to live the life or create a world which is accepting of them which is normally through a queer lineage of history that they create for themselves and then wanting to reify and create that loving lineage that cares about them that respects them that understands them through the through the construction of fantastical architectures um, which um, which is why there's very often this crossover between things that have queer queer sort of uh, issues embedded within them and people sort of shouting that they're Disney-like because this sort of this idea of this and Disney very much sort of referred to these but this this need to construct a world that it doesn't want to kill you um, is actually something that uh, runs through a lot of queer history and uh, superficially like many queer things looks like other things that architects hate. Um, and then I think finally, there's some others, but finally for now, the appropriation of public spaces. So very often when queer life could not exist in private space, when um, there was uh, too many barriers, for instance, between the classes, public space was the place where at different times of day, which are not suitable for the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the salient, the healthy gentleman and the delicate lady, um, in public spaces, they would be taken over by queers interacting across social classes um, or just um, interacting with, with their bodies in ways that, that actually couldn't happen uh, in private um, at the time. So those are the kind of rough categories, but there are, are others. And we always have at least one space that kind of stands for that type, either in a geographic location or across the world.
Joshua, I want to invite you to tell me a little bit about Christopher Street now that we've talked a little bit about those public spaces. Um, can you talk about that a little bit for me? Um, yes, I was going to, uh, I also wanted to add a little bit about also Adam was talking about the important, I suppose, interrelationship between grassroots activism and the development and molding of queer historical scholarship. I think a tool of that is also archiving, which is also developed by LGBT um, people themselves. But I think that's a good way of talking about Stonewall, um, which of course was you know, a seminal landmark episode in, in, in LGBT rights and activism. Um, the Stonewall uprising took place in June 28, 1969. And it was um, on this evening that New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn. I don't know if all of our listeners will know what that is. It was quite a, um, an anonymous looking gay club or gay bar in Greenwich Village. And Greenwich Village was already um, a neighborhood of bohemian artists, of queer people since at least about 1920, I think. And the Stonewall Inn welcomed also drag queens and transgendered people who had actually were so often ridiculed and ill received at other um, gay bars of the time. And on that night, I mean, obviously this is this is one manifestation that was building up, but on that night it sparked a major riot between the patrons of the bar um, and also other neighbourhood residents, I believe, as police attempted violently to remove patrons from the bar. And there were six days of protests and violent clashes with law enforcement that ensued outside the bar and across Christopher Street, where, um, where the bar still is today. And so it's a really vital and protected queer space. It's also a national historic landmark since, um, since the year 2000, no less. Um, of course, there is a context there, 1969, the riots took place as part of a, a wider turn towards social justice and civil rights. The civil rights movement, of course, had begun um, in the previous decade in the US to abolish institutional racial segregation. And so the, the stage was set for dramatic um, social progress in the queer community in the US and beyond. Um, so that's one of the, the more seminal spaces that we include in the book. Um, and I think also, as Adam was saying as well, um, there is a great limit in terms of what we could include. There is a contingent nature to the research process. And a lot of that, as Adam hinted at, had to do simply with what connections we had in different parts of the world and what connections we didn't have. Um, and I think there was a certain um, important and vital open-mindedness as well in inviting those that we reached out to to suggest other people who might be able to cover something that we felt um, is missing, to plug what we felt were vital gaps um, typologically, um, geographically, temporally, or otherwise. Um, I did want to say a little bit more about perhaps about archives, which I think is something that is that is one of the one of the, the most um, beautiful or rich parts of the book. And also there are a lot of pages dedicated to um, archives that are thoroughly illustrated because the archival objects were just so extraordinary um, that we managed to persuade the RIBA on a few occasions to extend the number of spreads we could devote to some of those archives. Am I allowed to talk about Water, Watermelon Woman? <laughs> so, uh, so there is a movie that I'd recommend all of, our, all of the listeners to watch from 1996 called The Watermelon Woman, which is by um, a film director called Cheryl Dunye. And it's, um, it's a work of autofiction about the central protagonist's journey of documenting the life of, unsung black, of, of an unsung um, black lesbian actress from the 1930s that was known as Watermelon Woman. And this character of the movie talks to subjects who might have remembered the watermelon woman. And a major source of the of the narrative is about archives. It's about you know old photographs, film clips, newsreels. All of these are help the story unravel. 
Um, and I think, you know, what, what's interesting about it is, is, is at the end, um, it transpires that the watermelon woman herself was the filmmaker's own creation. The idea is that these voices need representation, even if you have to create it yourself. But I think the archives speak for um, the necessity of queer archiving and queer archives to be not only kind of intellectual experiences, but emotional experiences. And we have um, several seminal archives in the book. So among the seminal and better known um, archives in the book is the One Center for Homophile Studies in Los Angeles, by way of example. We also include the Bishopsgate Institute as well, which has a phenomenal collection of material culture um, relating to, um, to queer history in London. Um, and we also, in, in terms of those archives of feeling that I tried to mention earlier, those emotional archives, we have the Trans Memory Archive included in Buenos Aires. And this is written up really empathetically um, in the book, really beautifully by Facundo Revuelta. And it's a project, the, the Trans Memory Archive was a project of documenting the very existence of Argentine um, travesty trans people for posterity. And those who were making the archive, again, a kind of grassroots archive from the community, were using a closed Facebook group. And this is um, members of the trans community across Argentina, especially Buenos Aires, uploading personal photographs, sharing anecdotes that spanned decades, finding one another again through that process. And the archive got bigger and bigger. And a small team of, um, of the community, also professional photographers, got together and began digitizing photographs from the past, scanning them in high resolution to preserve trans memory, along with letters, other ephemera, other objects, thereby reclaiming a hitherto simply unchronicled heritage. Um, I think in terms of another archive of feeling in the book is the Museum of Transology, which sits as part of the Bishopsgate Institute, which is really the most important, perhaps in the world, certainly in the UK, collection of material cultures surrounding trans, non-binary and intersex lives. And it's particularly important because the artifacts themselves of that collection um, are donated by the trans community and are captioned by the trans community as well. And often it's extremely ordinary objects that, are, that come in from the donors that are to that community extraordinary um, objects. Um, for example, there is a, a common or garden lipstick that might be from Boots Pharmacy, which is a sort of high street pharmacy in the UK. But actually it was the present from a sister who was the first family member to accept their sibling's gender transition. So it's ordinary, but through its ordinariness is also quite extraordinary. So those, those um, hand, that handful of examples really serve collectively to speak for the distinctiveness of the archival project, what it means to archive queerly, um, what it means to archive queer stories and artifacts. And we, we couldn't include all the many pioneering um, vital archives, but we try to give a broader sense of their nature. And also in our small way, um, provide some small amount of funds to the Trans Memory Archive to keep digitizing. I think the idea of, an, of all these archives within what you are creating, which is a kind of archive. And I really like the temporal um, shifts in the book when you have those, um, well, you talked about the, the temporary um, 
more permanent uh, taking over of space, but you have kind of the train journey and the train carriages that are, uh, you know, momentarily transformed into queer spaces, either, you know, formally in that or anecdotally as the last carriage um, in the train is being known as a as a safe space. Or you have um, Isla Rivas talking about a specific train journey where they would transform from um, or they would, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, return to their childhood dress to kind of fit in in their hometown and then traveling back to the city and that carriage having an immense personal um, uh, weight as a, a queer space. So I, th I think that that um, it also speaks to the idea of um, happenings like parades and their kind of overlapping political and then also um, you know, reclamation of space or claiming of space, trans temporary or permanent transformation of space. Actually, one, one another typology that I didn't mention is is journeys, um, which is very very important. So the mo moving through time and space um, as a sort of protean being that um, that transforms the spaces as they move through them and is transformed by the spaces is something that that re is recurrent recurrent through all of queer history and also is a very important type, I guess, in our book, and you mentioned a few of those. Yeah, which is which is strange to think of, you know, how is that an art? How can that idea of movement through space be, uh, you know, defined in architecture as a kind of performance of architecture? How did how it acts upon that space, I think, is a really interesting idea. But it'd be good to hear about that and also how it um, how it uh, its its ability to actually um, provoke political change, which is something that is mentioned in the book as well, about how the power of those um, those those happenings um, in kind of leading to political action. Well, I think there are increasingly more and more studies in which sexualities and material environments intersect that are becoming much more common, um, particularly the pioneering book, I think it's 2005 by Matt Holbrook, which was called Queer London, um, that really charts the geography of queer experience. It's a spatial approach, um, similar to ours, but focusing very much on 20th century London, but mapping the key sites of what I think he calls London's sexual geography. And also the Pride of Place initiative is the institutional equivalent, I suppose, of our book, in a sense, from Historic England. Historic England is the public body that's responsible for the care of the historic environment in the UK. And that project is led by scholars in Leeds, in Yorkshire, identifying key buildings and locations associated with LGBT heritage, um, marking a strength and commitment to bringing greater attention to uh, marginalized and underrepresented groups. And I think in terms of you know the grassroots that we talked about as well, um, queering the map is a bit is again similar to our book in that it's mapping out sexual trajectories queer experiences but it comes absolutely from the grassroots a kind of vernacular um, map project that's astonishingly beautiful and shows how queerness really is everywhere and in all shapes and guises yeah and I, I mean in a way queerness is a sort of has evolved as with modernity um and evolved with urbanization um and a lot of these things, you know, um, comparsa drag in Buenos Aires um, that we talk about that sort of reappropriate um, the urban realm. Um, and then also the, obviously the cruising spaces that we talk about. 
which are less performative, but nonetheless um, just embedded in, as embedded in the urban grain. There's a kind of aspect of that Baudelairean flaneur, so the, the kind of the the transformation of existing space through perception and reinterpretation. Um, in the case of Baudelaire, but then also in these cases through action and activity, um, that you know doesn't necessarily transform the space. It doesn't transform the architecture. And I think there's a kind of hole that architecture went into in the 80s, um, you know, of, of trying to map movement and then turn it into sort of forms, which is sort of this formal obsession of architecture, when actually they can they can kind of coexist existing architectural and urban environments can very much contain something which then trans transforms them through layering of meaning um, at different points in time. And, and I think that that's very important for um, changing perception of how cities can be used, um, what they mean. Um, and, you know, you, for instance, queerness has got a great history of taking monuments to terrible things um, and turning them into symbols and celebrations of existence, defiance and joy which I think is very, very relevant uh, these days as we're, re, you know, sort of reevaluating uh, a lot of the things that we've chosen to, to mark and memorize in our architectures and in our monuments. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and, and that continues, that continues to this day. Um, what's nice is that you have things uh, like Compasa Drag or like Master Plano in Belo Horizonte, which is a sort of, uh, a sort of rolling um, uh, party or celebration musical festival uh, which is also turned into an educational program uh, in Belo Horizonte uh, that brings the trans community together with the queer with kind of the wider gay community the queer community but also just the, the wider youth of Belo Horizonte these things are possible in countries where politically we're kind of in a sort of delicate moment to be which is quite lucky where we can exist and we can talk about ourselves but around the rest of the world a lot of this this public uh, it's not even a public display just reappropriation of the public spaces for queer uses, sometimes more obvious, sometimes less obvious, is still extremely dangerous. And we have some of those in the book. And I and I and we're lucky to have some of those in the book. There's some you know brave people who are uh, you know happy to contribute. But I must say there's a lot of really incredible, incredible, in, a lot of incredible stories that we couldn't include from all over the world. Because actually the many, many places in the world, people are not safe to talk about this. They're absolutely not safe to feel safe enough to be able to publish in a publication which is sold in shops about the things that they do in the places that they occupy. Because we're in a really privileged position, which is a tenuous one. Uh, we're in a very unusual moment in history where we can publish a book like this, where we can talk about creating our own histories, that we can have a Zoom uh, um, podcast with uh, you know an, an eminent editor. <laughs> it, it's a delicate. It's a very delicate thing, and um, we can kind of gauge where in the world we're at by how exuberant and how public these displays are. Did you have any concerns about? Um that kind of uh, precarity with any of them that you did include in the book because um, you talked about people uh, you know kind of bravely contributing and you know are there um, spaces in the book that are um, lost for other reasons too you know not least political I know there's a lot of um, talk about you know economic survival or gentrification kind of encroaching on queer space in all kinds of cities globally so um so political precarious and economic um, and social precarity as well 
Perhaps, perhaps one example that is a nice segue there that is, you know, that offers really important insights into the infrastructure, the racial and queer politics of sexuality and space in the 80s and 90s in Great Britain um, is the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre in London. So perhaps I might talk about that for a moment. And I think, um, I mean, what's remarkable to me as someone that was born, I think, in the year in which Margaret Thatcher's government uh, actually in which section 28 came into force, which were a sort of series of laws right across the UK that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. This included schools. Um, this was a, a key part of the manifesto promise that won the Conservatives the general election in 1987. At the same time, we had these remarkable um, community centres, queer community centres, including the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre in London. Um, and this, this was established just before that in 1985, with some funding from local authorities, so funding from the Greater London Council that started in an annex of Tottenham Town Hall in North London with a small voluntary team that offered counselling to Black queer people. Um, it also had a library, it also had various social events that it, that it organised, it organised um, LGBT campaigns. And they struggled to find a permanent home. They eventually settled on one in southeast London in a place called Peckham in 1992. Um, but this was disbanded. I think it, it essentially lost momentum. It lost funding. Um, and the beautiful thing is that the telephone line was rerouted to one of the volunteers' homes and it continued to ring for many years after. So it was a really, really extraordinary and vital infrastructure for these often, you know, for these, these people that were not only marginalized for being LGBT, but were also marginalized and discriminated within the community itself. Um, and I think, you know, to, to, to actually um, to concretize that in, in space and record the space in which this took place has, has been very important for us. I think the um, the choice of having many different narrators, you, you mentioned that having these multiple voices, not having a single um, narrative. And how did you go about choosing uh, these 55 contributors? Um, was it kind of, uh, were you seeking some kind of representation amongst that? Were you very conscious in it or, or is it maybe more uh, fluid and it's more um, and more personal? I think there were extraordinary responsibilities on our part as editors that we were quite aware of. And one of those, especially as this is a queer project, was striving to allow the authors themselves their own positions and to try. I saw the sort of raison d'etre of our editorial role as allowing the author's own voices to sing. So we were keen to make sure that people talked about queer experiences very much from um, from personal experience, from an embodied perspective. And this, I think, has given the book a great deal of vitality, allowing that kind of um, uh, self-representation. But the way that we the way that we chose was or it was more on the organic end. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we were aware that, um, you know, diversity was important, but at the same time, the 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 kind of ambition of the book, the kind of range that we wanted to cover was was quite daunting. Um, and on top of that, we didn't want just to sort of, to go to a few who's who of very famous um, academics. We were also really looking for a kind of new generation of historians, architects, uh, artists, writers, who we could kind of bring together with a kind of fresh perspective or just, and, and, and not, not to sort of, 
you know, with an editorial point that we would define what the perspectives were, but just not known ones. Um, so we kind of went out kind of presuming no <laughs> with a lot of, you know, known names. <laughs> so it was, it was a messy journey of discovery with a lot of really nice Zoom calls and a lot of great conversations and a lot of people during those long conversations with one particular person, them mentioning somebody that they met at one point and maybe they can find them on Instagram and then, <laughs> and then reaching out to them and then finding out that they'd done this incredible project of a digital museum in Bogota. I don't know, just like really, it's like these wonderful unexpected journeys that went on for about a year um, or so. And we were collecting a lot of potential stories and a lot of potential names, but a lot of people, we had great conversations, but then felt that they couldn't contribute for all kinds of reasons. Um, time, um, uh, that uh, they didn't feel comfortable for the reasons I mentioned before. Um, also, there were a lot of repeat spaces. So, you know, we came across some amazing, so many amazing spaces, but for instance, within the, that typological range, uh, it became too weighted very often with, for instance, nightclubs, <laughs> even though there's a lot of wonderful stories with those. So we were really trying to show a range of different types of spaces. So it was lots of different factors, like not too many in any one, any particular typologies, um, not names that are, you know, I, I guess already really famous and, you know, tenured or whatever, <laughs> you know, don't need us. Um, and uh, getting some, getting a range of diversity, geographical spread. And it was just, us every time we had a list sort of discussing that and, and then judging it and it went on for a year sort of like editing that um, and being very candid with the writers and sometimes for instance we found a writer whose perspective was beautiful but the space that they had proposed or that they knew about was actually like, you know we have way too many of those could you think is there anything else you want to cover and so we actually also had a little journey of of changing spaces with with quite a few of the writers as well based upon those conversations between myself and Josh. So it was a kind of messy, organic journey, I guess is the best way of describing it. I think just to, you know, explain for people who haven't seen the book too, that, you know, these spaces are not all designed by, you know, queer architects. There is, you know, I would say, you know, you could have said, okay, we're going to do something that is just about um, a very formal kind of expression, but it's really rooted in the kind of grassroots, um, uh, you know, probably more than, than it being just kind of a, a collection of, of lovely buildings um it, you know it's kind of got a collection of um like as you mentioned archives or um happenings or journeys uh, things, <laughs> journeys exactly um and i guess was there ever a time did you always know from the beginning that that was what you wanted to do or, or was there you know is, is that a statement in and of itself about your views of um of architecture and what is defined and classed and and written about so um from my from my perspective josh josh will definitely follow on with his own his own views but um i i'm a i'm a practitioner who has always created queer work with queer themes um which i've performed queerly and uh and i'm i'm personally very interested in queer designers um but at the same time I felt that was, at least from my perspective, very much jumping the gun because the world of queer space, which is about empowering that rainbow coalition um, within the architectural community to be able to conceive of space in a queer way, 
feeling supported meant that we had to look at the full range of what queer space was, which was very obviously not just design spaces at all. In fact, those are very much a minority, but they have great interest for me. And actually, so, so it was a matter of creating that. I guess you can say it's like a, it's our own archive. Like it's a history which shows the range of what queer space is and how different it is to like normal architectural histories. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a designer, I'm I'm you know extremely passionate about queer spaces designed by queer designers and queer architects, and actually queer architects and queer designers designing spaces which I consider queer, which are not necessarily for queer people. And that's what I do, and that's what I've always done. And my my, my work is uh, very much working upon queer themes. It's queer work that I present queerly. However, this was a really important, I guess, historical project for us within the architectural profession to create something which is just a, a sort of a book, an archive that hands to people the range of 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 queer spaces, what they mean, how serious they are, how important they are, and how they offer a kind of queer, a total queer alternative to kind of the standard conception of formal space. And that required this smorgasbord approach. I mean, we, we've shuffled the decks, but the, the categories are clearly there. You just look for yourself and find them for, your, for yourself within it. And so it was important to show that range. I would, however, like to very much like to do a book, which is about queer designs and queer aesthetics because that's a personal passion for mine but this was not the place for it that was that felt like jumping the gun and so there's a few spaces within that which are touching on those themes but the same with every other type typology that we discussed before there's always some touching on them but none of them become predominant I mean I think I would add you mentioned the vernacular and I think it is that the vernacular tends to mean I mean if we think about a linguistic analogy one thinks about the mother tongue a vernacular voice. I think it tends to refer to an organic architecture, perhaps dweller-oriented, perhaps local, non-designed. And interestingly, that kind of vernacular is very often divorced from architecture proper, from the designed. And I think this is a different type of vernacular that you're referring to, but in the same way, it's changing what a survey of architecture can look like. So it is a, a big reorientation project and it should be seen, I think we saw it as a big opportunity to revise the canon to include not only designers, but everyone else who contributes to our built environment. Well, I just want to thank you both for talking to me about the book today. It's called Queer Spaces. Where do people get it? On the RBA website or at any good bookshop? Waterstones especially. Especially at Waterstones. Um, but yes, ho hopefully in America, Barnes and & Noble and, and lots of bookshops. And it's um, I just uh, really interesting uh, looking, you know, journeying around the world, reading these stories and really um, seeing this collection together. A huge amount of work. So congratulations to both of you. And thanks for talking to me today. Thank you very much for the invite. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the developer UK. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.